Well, good morning, ease and joy. <laughs> Thank you all again for all your effort to make this possible for us. Such a rare gift that we can give each other to create a space just to be still. However that looks for each of us, it's a monumental effort to, to sustain a space for this. Uh, it's, uh, most of it is an invisible. Much of the effort that goes on in sustaining Santa Cruz Zen Center isn't, isn't seen by most of us. It goes on in people's homes and in QuickBooks and <laughs> everywhere that there is, everything that is imagined comes to bear on this small place so that we can be here. So just so that we can be here and be quiet. It's really stunning and a, a great reminder that none of us and none of this is possible without all of us and all of this. It's all of a piece, one fabric. And uh, we're just, you know, making our folds. <laughs> and so I'm deeply grateful to you for sustaining this place and for all that you do in your lives. And I know what it takes. And I'm, I'm just very grateful to you. Thank you. And of course, for giving me the great good fortune to get to come here and be with you in this beautiful place. Um, so <clears throat> we've been talking a lot this weekend about the body, about suffering, and about including it all as this one. And that, that this sort of non-seeking mind that just includes everything and body, heart, mind is, um, is, is free of self. It's free of suffering. It has the ability to reside in ease and joy. Um, even when it's off kilter. If we wrap that in too, this too, it's not that those things don't happen. Uh, it's not that those things don't arise in the mind and the body. So there's a wonderful story in this little book called The Little Book of Zen Healing by Paula Arai. She's a scholar, um, Zen scholar. And um, she tells this little story about, um, here, I need to get to it, about a woman. She um, is an ethnographer. And she is a Japanese-American woman and has um, very devotedly gone to study, uh, to conduct her study, her research in Japan with women specifically, specifically uh, homemakers, lay women who practice in their homes. And she has extensively um, revealed how they engage their everyday lives with a in a, in a Zen uh, Buddhist um, lens, how they follow the path with their home altar, how they use their home altars for healing for their families, 
for their loved ones, for their communities. Very beautiful work, really. And I think really helpful to us trying to live this way in, uh, in, in, in our country. Um, not at all rigid, uh, not at all form bound. These women create ritual for the sake of healing themselves and their families and their loved ones and their communities and, uh, in their homes. And she looks at that very deeply. So in this little book, she tells the story of Hunda-san, who has leg pain of unknown cause. So constant leg pain of unknown cause. She says, in, it says, sometimes immobilizing, always penetrating. She characterizes it, is it as even worse than when a dentist accidentally touches a nerve in an unanesthetized part of your mouth because the source of her pain does not move away. It stays in place, generating fresh waves of pain with each breath. So imagine, imagine that. Um, at times, tears quietly and uncontrollably leak out of the corners of her eyes as the pain courses through her. It's a very powerful image of this, of this woman. And uh, she lives in a tiny studio apartment and she loves her little apartment because everything's right there. She doesn't have to walk a lot. She doesn't have to put a lot of, of, uh, of she doesn't have to cause herself extra pain to, um, to take care of her everyday life. So she loves her little studio. And then sometimes she has to go out to get things, to buy food, to, to you know, visit the doctor, go to uh, the post office, whatever it is. And so the errands of her life and so she really thinks that through. She thinks through what, what's that going to take to go, you know, what's the, she says here, um, and I really so relate to this. <laughs> so she mostly rides uh, public transportation, often being treated uh, as though she is unintelligent. So because she sways when she walks, she walks with a, a, a pronounced limp. Um, when she needs to go out for groceries or other errands, she plans her route around how many stairs she'll have to climb or descend in order to ride the train, the subway, buses. She knows which routes are the easiest on her legs, and she weighs that against which way is the fastest. <laughs> Depending on how many places she needs to go, she calculates how much is reasonable for her leg to handle that day. I want to emphasize that because she is respecting her body. She's not um, overriding it, even though she will put it, engage it in painful activity in order to live her life. She is planful about that. She's in conversation with her pain so that she knows uh, what can be done today. And maybe something goes off the errand list until another day, because today, this is it. This is what it is today. And I think that's a real honoring of, of the body, just as it is with its pain, with its suffering. Um, and so 
then she sustains this, as Paula describes it, the healing activity that has sustained Honda-san through the worst of her incapacitating hip pain is scripture copying or sutra copying, uh, shock you, shock you. She makes her way to a Zen nun's temple at the top of a steep hill in Nagoya on the third Saturday of the month. She rarely misses. So this is a priority. This is her healing activity. This is where she is held uh, in um, the love of, of Asanga and in the, in the beauty of the Heart Sutra. Uh, she carefully brushes the calligraphic strokes of each character of the Heart Sutra. At the end, there's a place to write a prayer. And it's not uncommon for people to go um, to sutra copying, Paula says, in order to make their prayer more efficacious. So uh, she's describing this to Paula and Paula uh, brings herself to the interaction. And she says, well, what, what, do you, what do you pray for in your prayer? And she matter-of-factly, Honda-san, matter-of-factly responded that she had never prayed for anything. She had never written a prayer. And Paula said, uh, Paula was shocked. She said, don't you pray for the pain in your hip to go away? Now, she looked surprised and confused. She sputtered, no, I never even thought about it. It never occurred to me. So Paula was embarrassed. <laughs> she realized that this was uncomfortable, had created discomfort for uh, Honda-san and uh, that it might in some way indicate a criticism of her practice. And so Paula had to dig herself out. <laughs> so she, she, but she, but instead of doing that, she blurted out, why not? I would. <laughs> and uh, she says Honda-san was visibly uncomfortable. Um, and just, you know, just uh, was sort of surprised. And it was hard for her, it seemed, to understand this, the question at all. Um, and so Paula said, to get out of it, she said, well, that's what I would have done, and then changed the subject. <laughs> so Paula goes on, the key to understanding why she never prayed for her own pain to be removed lies in her lies in the confusion she exhibited when asked about that. Um, it had never occurred to her. Um, and here's here's the source of this: is that Hondasan does not resist her life circumstances. She does not resist her life circumstances. She does not even privately wish that things were different. She, does, she also does not passively watch life go by without her. So she is neither blind to her circumstance nor bound by it. Um, Honda-san has disciplined herself to perceive her situation as no one's fault. And I have to say that in my own journey blame has been a big issue and how do i work with trauma interjected into me pre-verbal and ongoingly through childhood and not lay blame 
I was a child, right? And the truth is, I had to get beyond that understanding in order to penetrate the truth of my own trauma. I had to let go of blame entirely and understand that I may not be responsible for this which was put into me, yet I am responsible for what comes out of my mouth and what I do now, regardless of where it originated or what seems to be its source. And so that for me was a way to let go of fault finding and just accept my own responsibility, which was excruciating, excruciatingly painful because accepting responsibility meant knowing that I was doing harm with my words, that my anger that would fly out of me hurt other people. It hurt other beings. It was not skillful. And it seemed totally automatic as if there was nothing I could do. It just turned on and there it was. And I would literally, as, I, as my healing progressed and I had more vision, because the terror body is blind. It's blind. It doesn't see itself. It doesn't see even really the anger that it, that it puts out. It just, it, it, I don't know, it, it's blind. And so uh, once I saw, then it was absorbing the pain of the other, constantly, constantly absorbing the, the reaction of the other as my responsibility in a sense. I mean, other people's reactions aren't my responsibility. I don't mean to imply that, but certainly if my words, my unskillful, harsh words or tone has done harm, I bear that responsibility. So then I would fall into self-loathing. I don't wanna be alive. Why does why cause so much suffering? Never, of course, accounting for anything else uh, that my that my that I might have brought forth in the world because then it became all about sinking just I would sink into this suffering uh having caused pain and having been so unskillful having and and I would literally watch myself do this like I'd be on the phone holding four or five hours, you know, for whoever I was trying to get help from. Finally, they come on the line and I'm, you know, and, and again, blind, but standing, watching myself speaking this way, saying to myself, what are you doing? What are you doing? But seemingly the neurology just triggered, just doing what it, what it learned to do to be, to keep people at bay, to keep, to keep myself safe. But I, I don't know. I may never understand all the whys and wherefores. But, but that was, but seeing into that and being willing again and again, it's like Kundasan getting up every morning with that leg pain again and again and again and taking it up as my responsibility without blame without laying fault on myself or others, but taking ownership. 
And so that's what this story speaks to me of a woman who was exceedingly courageous and got herself moving every day, knowing that this pain could be so unbearable it would take her to tears. And yet up she got, off she went to climb the stairs to the temple to copy Sutra, to be with her Sangha, to engage her practice in her way, just as she was, not asking for a different leg or a different life. Oh, I prayed, I begged, honey. No, no, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, it was, I have been many times I have wished for a, a, to go back to a belief in God during those moments when I had been cruel or something had come out of me that didn't fit at all with my heart. But there it was, it was my mouth moving, it was my voice. I can't disown it. Yes, this too, this too, Beata, this too. And in that field, how do you get up? How do you go out of your door? How do you get carry on and hold any confidence that you can be safe for other people or that other people can be safe with you? It's profound. It, and uh, it was very, uh, very excruciating. But, you know, uh, she says here, you know, she had disciplined herself to perceive her situation as no one's fault. She realizes that she has the power to shape her life. And she chooses to define herself and her needs by her own standards. This is a tough thing to come to come to come to in life that I don't have to look at somebody else to see how I should bow or how I should how I should be that this is the one that that decides that. And yes, this one is faulty, weak, broken in certain ways, has difficulties. As do all of us, right? As we all come to our lives in that way. Um, uh, uh, one of my favorite teachings from Dogen is in the Bodhisattva Shishoho, which is the Bodhisattva's four methods of guidance. And in there, there's a line where he says, taking a body, taking the body and giving up the body are both acts of giving. Taking a body, a source of suffering. Suzuki said, you pick up a piece of dust, you got trouble. Taking up a body, taking on a body and giving up the body, both acts of giving, both acts of generosity. They are bodhisattva acts, just the taking on. She never felt sorry for herself. She abides in contentment putting inked brush to paper while the incense wafts through the air of the temple. She feels the wooden carving of Kanon Sama, the Bodhisattva of compassion, gazing down upon all with each intricate stroke of black ink on white washi paper. She traces the gray path of form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Countless people have followed this path before her and countless more will do so in the future. In this continuous flow, each present moment is complete. In each moment, there may be pain, 
but there is not suffering. <clears throat> In each moment, one belongs just as one is. Just as one is, one belongs. Just as one is in this vast and beautiful expanse. There is no need to pray for anything. She considers herself healed because she does not wish her life were in any way different than it is. That's ease and joy. Ease and joy. Doesn't matter how the people on the bus react when she gets on the bus <laughs> or how people walk by her and then look down on her. It's ease and joy. She's... So it is not <clears throat> papering over. Ondasan does not paper over her, her pain. She acknowledges it. She companions it. She, she engages with her legs. So what do you think we can do today? What are we up for today? The legs belong just like they are. And she belongs just as she is. Kaizen in the Song of the Grassroof Hermitage that we chanted last night says, if you want to know the way, don't wander far from this bag of bones. <laughs> and this one, not the one you wish you had <laughs> or envisioned <laughs> being so much better because it's probably not. <laughs> so we have a story in Zen, you know, about the finger pointing to the moon. And the way that gets talked about is don't look at the finger, look at the moon. And I would say it's only through the finger that you can see the moon. It's only in this body that we can go beyond suffering. And that's what Honda-san is teaching. She's teaching a way to live in pain every minute of every day, so excruciating that it can bring her to tears and live a life of ease and joy right in the midst of it. Not asking it to be something else. And because she doesn't want it to be something else, she has ease and joy. Ease and joy come forth in, as her life. It's not a special effort. The effort is in including all of it. Oh, yes, that too. And remaining in relationship, even with the parts that we don't like or wish were different. So... How do we do this? How do we live from a space of ease and joy with, with this body? So I think first we have to believe the body. Believe it. We live in a culture that wants us to override it, push it down, mind over matter, you know, the spirit and the flesh. Spirit's good, flesh bad. We, you know, we have a division culturally. And this makes it more challenging for us to understand that the body is telling the truth. Believe the body. And 
not too much. Right? The body this morning, my alarm rang. I was like, what? <laughs> really? And the body wanted the snooze button, you know. So you know what I did? I, I negotiated. I looked at the time and I said, okay, one snooze. <laughs> then we're up. Somebody said, all right. And that's what we did. So I believed the body. Yes, you know, it was tired, I understand. But not so much, like Hondasan, not so much that I won't make my way to the temple. Uh, even if I'm sleepy or there's some pain or something I think is, you know, not perfect for the temple. <laughs> It's all just as it is. So it's not about ignoring the body, but also, um, you know, including the body in our thinking and our way of being. Joy and ease are not fabricated. They are not conditioned states of mind. They're unborn states of mind. It's an unborn state of mind, a state of mind before things are made. <laughs> so, uh, it's and 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 it cannot be made up by trying to shove down what we want or what we wish for or what hurts us or what is actually happening or the suffering of another or whatever it may be. Uh, it is um, it is it arises spontaneously um, when all is included as just this life. Darlene called this mundane anguish. She said eventually it all just becomes mundane anguish. It's just my anguish. You got yours, you got yours. <laughs> and here we are practicing together. So there is a little bit of de-identification that we can do to help with this. Just as Honda-san was willing to be affected by her pain, she was not managed by her pain. And uh, she, in a sense, de-identified it. Her pain was not her, did not define her, but still very much a part of her life and needed to be worked with in the very way she walked and moved and how she thought about where she would go and how she would go and so on, and how she prioritized. You know, maybe she couldn't go to the temple and then stop for groceries. She could go to the temple and go home and the groceries would wait. So she had, she included all of that and wrapped it in. And by including it all, then it's all just her life. It's not pain you know, and suffering. It's just her life, her everyday life. No different from yours or mine. So I think that we can, in addition to believing the body, we can also create space for those parts of ourselves that are suffering. We can make space for them. And I'm in favor. I know this is probably heretical. Is this being recorded? This is probably heretical, uh, which is invite yourselves to tea. You know, sit, pour, pour two cups of tea. Invite what's hurting you. Fill a cup. Fill a cup for yourself. Sit. Have tea. With this hurting part of you. Make space for it. 
make space to become intimate with it, to know it. Darlene talked about um, going grocery shopping here in San Francisco when she lived at uh, 300 Page Street. And she said she would come with her bags. And she actually usually had people help her with her bags, people she found at the store who would help her with her bags. So they would hand her her bags and she'd be standing at the bottom of those stairs at 300 page, right? And she would think, oh, I don't know. Can I make it up the stairs? And, and, and so accounting, noticing her pain, presencing it, walking with it, not through it, in spite of it, but walking with it up the stairs, she realized something. She realized, oh, the pain in the foot, that the pain is in the foot that's down. The foot that's up doesn't hurt. So she trained herself to put her consciousness in the foot that was up as she walked up the stairs. And she said she just practically got up there and didn't even, she was like, wow. It, it's the intimacy with that suffering, the intimacy with that pain, I'll say, that allowed her to understand it and begin to be able to partner with it, to dance with it, to not to ask it to leave, not to force it to, not to ignore it. La la, if I just sing this song really loud in my head, I won't feel it. No. No, no, come on with me up the stairs. Let's see how we can do this together. This too. Don't ask the parts of yourselves that you don't like to be different. Don't practice to change yourself, some part of yourself that you think should, should be different. Create safety for that part of yourself. Become intimate with those parts of yourselves. Let them come here and sit with you, with us, like Honda-san in the Sangha, being healed by the presence of her people and her, what the things she loved and thought were beautiful. It's okay. The container is plenty, plenty strong for all of that. Believe me, people have sat in this room with all of mine <laughs> and still do, still will have me back. <laughs> so please <clears throat> don't ask them to change. And when they are safe enough, those parts of you, <clears throat> unjudged, not judged, not pushed, driven, forced, not asked to leave, right? They, with enough safety, they can relax in this wide field that you have created for them and that others in the practice place help you create for them. My Sangha mates co-created enough safety for me to be present. And that's one of the things we do for each other in the midst of suffering is we, we don't ignore one another. We, we, we notice, we feel, and we create space, loving, non-judgmental space. It's okay. So sit a little differently today. Lie down. Thank you for coming. Thank you for bringing yourself here to be with us just as you are. Because that's what makes this possible for all of us. No special effort is required. 
And then knowing the mind, being human, the mind forgets, we forget. We forget our wholeness. You know, some of us talk about, we go to work and it's like, what happened to all that practice? <laughs> or, you know, I'm good and I'm a great zenny in my living room. And then I step out my door and oh my God, what happened? Um, you know, in the, in the needs and demands and expectations of our everyday lives, we can forget this wholeness that is us, that includes all of it. We forget we are whole, that this whole circle is, 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 is us. We get hijacked and we focus only on part of it. And because the brain as a bodily organ has a negativity bias, we tend to lean toward the negative as humans. It's just part of having this one up here. So the big frontal lobe, I think. I don't think Huck worries about it at all, right? Because that's the, the benefit of not having this big old frontal lobe, right? It just messes up everything. So so we, we, we sit and we remember, we remember ourselves as, as the whole thing. And sometimes I know when I've sat long, and I, I mean, it's happened here as well, it almost always does, I feel like my brain widens and just begins to include everything around me. I'm noticing people more, I'm noticing faces more, sounds, because it, it, it let go a little bit of its self-obsession. It remembered. And we have to return home again and again and feel our wholeness so that we can welcome these parts of ourselves and let them be. The forgetting and the remembering are both Buddha Dharma. They're both Buddha Dharma. One is not bad and the other good. It's not essential to remember every minute of every day. <laughs> the remembering and the forgetting, the turning toward and the turning away. It's all part of one 360 degree activity. So um, it's always right here. Whether we are forgetting or remembering, it's always right here. And um, We just return again and again, again and again. And we train for that through Zazen. We come back, we come back to the, to the body-mind just as it is. And we just <clears throat> bring it back every time we find it elsewhere. And that teaches the mind the, that the body is safe and that we're safe to be with and that we can actually be present with what is. So, how are we? Yesterday, Patrice, I talked so much. Oh, you were here, I know. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm wondering if anyone else would like to talk. Anything you'd like to bring up? Questions, comments? We have a little bit of time. I, I just want to thank you for uh, taking your beautiful all-inclusive way to 
that's true we avoid it because it is um i do not see physical pain and mental anguish as different from each other i think they are well they're different but i would say um i don't separate the body from the mind at all because having lived with both chronic physical pain which has mental and emotional aspects um and some pr pretty profound PTSD that I've carried most of my life. Um, uh, having lived through the lenses of both of those, <laughs> I don't think they're separate at all. My experience of them is that they are completely interlaced and interrelated. Um, and when I saw finally was given the great gift of seeing into my own trauma, the, the sort of the root of my own trauma. It took about 40 years of intense effort. When I finally was given that gift of that little opening, um, so much dropped off just of itself. But I think pushing it to change, wanting it so much to be different had been a hindrance for many years until I just said, let it in. But in the midst of that, that mental anguish that was so persistent and, you know, torturing myself and telling myself, you know, all kinds of things about that just were not at all what was going on, but was what my mind had learned to do to try to control itself. You know, tell yourself you're no good, that you should never talk. You shouldn't be, you should try to be the wall, you know, don't. Well, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. But but I would tell myself that, you know, um, be as small as you can. And then I would beat myself up because I'm not good at that. <laughs> so learning to love my own humanity. You have to love your humanity. That's the finger part. And then from there, from that love, the moon is just, it, you can't miss the moon. You can only be awake. And that's been my experience. I never would have believed it five years ago. I never would have believed it. But now I feel I can speak to this from experience. And the body and the mind are one, absolutely one. And that mental anguish exacerbated my physical pain. That's one of the reasons I'm so much stronger now. Physically, I can do more now than I could with this active uh, PTSD going on. It freed my body as well as my, my uh, heart mind. They're one. No, we, we really should like the Japanese have one word. Shin means body and mind. They're one word the same word. And I wish we could find that in English. Uh, so. Anything else? Thank you, Patrice. 
almost got something, Steve. Oh, I've just really been appreciating your talks and thank you so much. It's so wonderful to hear your dharma. Um, one thing you talked about, which really resonated with me, is finding a home for these different emotions in your body mm -hmm. and making it a safe place. And one of the things I've been working with lately is that, this idea of embodiment mm -hmm. and what is the body and where, where do we hold it? And working with some grief the last year, mm -hmm. you know, I found grief kind of as this being that yes. can be in my body, mm -hmm. but also live outside of it. And grief as a body that's like its own field of consciousness that is in all bodies. It's mm -hmm. like a universal body, Sambhoga Kaya, mm -hmm. but then also personal. Yes. So that, that kind of also your experience yeah. yes exactly yeah. that it they that it's a flow and we walk through it <laughs> and um uh you know i said yesterday I, I think grief as in particular because it's about attachment right and it, and we we understand attachment causes suffering but would we really not want to be attached so that we don't suffer is that i mean <laughs> people do ask for that i don't want that i want the mess i'll i'll take the mess of grief for for the joy and the pleasure of being connected and attached but you know um different different choices um so but we should understand that there's suffering in attachment but that doesn't mean being unattached still i think grief is physical I think it is very much a body, uh, the grief body, the pain body. And to understand it that way and allow it to move its way, to work its way into the body fully, to be fully absorbed by the body. And then my experience is it sort of eases. Maybe it becomes safe enough. I tend to, I used to, I would say, you know, I can't let go of grief. Grief lets go of me. And that's, I think it's more than letting go. I think it, it becomes absorbed and then it's just part of me and it doesn't have to be up all the time in my consciousness. Um, and that can take a lot longer than I prefer to put it mildly. <laughs> so making enough space for that is not so easy. Yeah. Yeah. I admire the practice. Thank you, Steve. No, no, okay, thank you. Patrick? Well, I, I mean, uh, um, Steve said the word embodiment, but I think because you were describing, describing it, um, you know, when, when we, uh, we learn to be a dog, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it takes, it takes a, a while before you can say, you know, I've now embodied this. And, you can't really write it down. You can't really say, this is how you hit the bells at the right time, at the right speed, and mildness. It, it takes practice. I, I know you're not saying that, um, that five years ago, you just took in a great idea. Uh, it, uh, it must have, I mean, probably 10 years ago, you started you know, a practice and, and maybe something. But, but, yes. Uh, 
so this embodiment uh, takes practice. I, I think I think you've said that. I think. I think exactly. Yeah. That, um, uh, maybe it's just sort of a, an intention that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it uh, mm -hmm. this in a different way and try. Yeah. I, 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 I'm just reassociating. Uh, please, please jump in and say you know what what that practice was or the or the um, I, you know what was. Um, the woman with chronic pain, what was, you know, she practiced every day, but, um, but there, there was a time, it, it took her a while to put that practice, to, to get that down. Oh, yes. So, so, so tell, tell me more about that. Sure. How, how do you embody something so um, ethereal? I think a couple of things for, from my own life, you know, one is, um, you know, it takes guts. You gotta, you gotta give it your gut. You gotta, I don't know how else to put it, you know, throw yourself whole self into it. I mean, I think in, in Zen, we say, you know, um, what is it? Give up your life, you know, <laughs> give, give your life, give your whole life, you know? Um, and I think life takes that, you know, um, really bringing your whole body and mind to it. It's not a partial activity, um, this embodying, this taking in and allowing oneself to be chewed so completely that, uh, that you know, something has to arise in, 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 instead. And over, over I mean, I, I really, between practice and therapy, I would say 40 years for me with mental anguish, with my um, trauma history, and I would, I, and the chronic physical pain will, will carry itself out probably for the rest of my life because I have nerve damage in the sciatic nerve, which is a big nerve, turns out. <laughs> and, and it really affects, you know, um, I'm lucky I don't limp. I don't, most of the time I I've been very fortunate, but I can have to do that if it, if it gets, if I don't take care of it all the time and pay attention to it. But I think it's allowing it to be not me. So being neither blind to it nor bound by it, but how, what's the balance of that? Am I bound by it? If I choose to lay down for part of a, of a sashim? Um, or is that actually not being bound by it because I'm in Sashin, I'm still engaging my life. And I have chosen to see that as unbound, that I'm not blind, I need to lie down, but I'm, I'm here, I'm in my life. So finding ways to, to do that, to carry on, to maybe changing the question from, can I do this to how can I do this um, is hugely benefit has been hugely beneficial to me as well. And I learned that question, that question came up for me in a vision quest I did in the desert with, with Kathy Toldy's teacher out in the Mojave for three days fasting. And the, the question that arose for me was how this add the how, how can I, instead of can I, can I? And that was very empowering. And I came out of the desert feeling stronger. 
Um, so little bit by little bit, letting those things in. That's why I talked yesterday about, you know, noticing your upright body, feeling it, letting it remind you that you're strong, that you are aligned, that you that you are on the earth and that you're here with others. And that that that, that builds confidence. And I think that that's important. Um, Darlene talked about endemic pleasure, that it is everywhere. I mean, look at these walls. I was sitting here this morning looking at these walls, the texture, and these walls are gorgeous. And the way the light hits this plaster, it's unpainted plaster. And it's, it's, it's just, you could meditate all day on the walls. Um, <laughs> take that in, let yourself be fed that. It's there it is. It's everywhere all the time. So endemic pleasure or endemic relief. Give the body relief. It's okay. And it 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 allows you like eating for you know for sustenance for practice. I think pleasure is sustenance for life, for not exhausting ourselves. And I don't mean pleasure about going to movies. I don't mean fun in that way, although that's good too, don't get me wrong. But um, I'm talking about just what is always present everywhere. Just like suffering is always present everywhere. Pleasure is always present everywhere. It's just that we get hijacked by the suffering and we're turned over here and missing the walls and the breath of the person next to me so soft gentle. and and the sweetness of, of a face that I love. You know, whatever it is, the, the vase, the, anything handmade, Jean's beautiful tables, I and mean, there's so much nourishment everywhere. And we need that in order to carry on with what is not such always such an easy way. Being awake is a not always so easy. Thank you. Are we complete? Anyone online have a question? I didn't even look down because every time I look down, I see myself and I want to fix my robe and I'm, not, I'm suddenly in a mirror here going, I didn't put that on quite right. I just want to say I really appreciate this talk. Um, it's so incredibly vast that I don't even dare ask a question because it's so big. Mm -hmm. So I want you to have that feedback. If you're experiencing silence, it's because there's an immense amount of experience happening in the <laughs> silent world <laughs> due to your inspiration. Well, thank you so much, Kaya. Thank you all. Much, much gratitude. Yada, I think Shakti had her hand up. Oh, oh, Shakti, please. Yes. Shakti, did you have a question or a comment? Oh, wait. Can I hear? Hang on. 
Oh, oh, oh. She there. Okay. You can hear. Yes. Yeah. So um, I was just uh, thinking about how I discovered with living with chronic pain and a body that gives me all kinds of new adventures, I can say. Um, <laughs> it's full of a bag of tricks that seems to be bottomless. But at the same time, what I've discovered is that those, that is all part of, like Patrick says, the whole works. You know, it's not something to be kind of of this part of being in this body. You know, this is the body that I got. And I'm still very um, grateful for having a vehicle to experience life on planet with all beings. That is a gift. And to be sentient being is even an extra gift because I can contemplate how my existence is within all the other beings. And so pain and discomfort and you know, having, like you said, like finding my way of being in the world and navigating it is, you know, my way of saying, I can still do this, but I'll do my own way. Yes. And then the pain and the discomfort and all of that has been one of my greatest teachers. And so, I think of it, and I actually have a lot of gratitude for what I was given, because through that, it really kind of opened me up at a younger age to mm -hmm. experience and explore what is being all about. And it's not about acquisition of things or material goods or um, success, as they call it, you know, in sort of uh, terms of the economy. But it's about connecting with others. You know, like the Buddha says, the three treasures you know, and I think it was Ananda or someone who asked him, like, well, what about um, Sangha? 50% of the uh, of this. And the Duda said, no, that's all of it. 100% of the way. Yes. Friendship, spiritual friendship, the Buddha said. Yeah. So mm -hmm. my lifeline really was the Sangha. And it has been since. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Darlene said, uh, some people used to say to her, oh, you know, you've suffered so much. You must be so deep and profound. And she said, I trade it all for one day with just pleasure. You know, <laughs> he traded all, all the depth in the world for one day without pain. And I think that's the truth, you know, um, and yet that's not, that wasn't her life. And from her life came the fruit of us being in this room, knowing how to talk about these things because she gave us that. And, um, and Shakti gives us that and reminds us of that and, and helps, helps us all. We're all each other's bodhisattvas. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Liz and Corrine and Nigel and uh, uh, Shakti for, be for joining us. Much appreciate you being here with us. And thank you all. Remember this. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to win them. Dharma gates are boundless.